0: The following message comes to you from the pulpit of Zion Primitive Baptist Church in Zion, Alabama. For more information, please visit us online at zionpbc.com. I want us to consider a question tonight that Job asked. And in order to appreciate the significance of this question, we need to first uh, refresh our memory about Job's experience Uh, Most of you are familiar with it, so we just want to give sort of an overview. Now you remember that uh, the Lord uh, suffered Satan to attack Job. Uh, Job was described as a a godly man. man. And in particular, notice the uh, words that were used to describe him in the very beginning of the book of Job. In chapter 1 and verse 1 it says there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job and that man was perfect and upright and one that feared God and eschewed evil. So Job was not a wicked man. Job was not living in such a way that God's judgment was due to come upon him, but to the contrary, he was a perfect man. That doesn't mean sinless, that means he was mature, he was uh, a man that had grown much spiritually, he was upright, and most importantly, he feared God. And because he feared God, he eschewed evil. So there's nothing wrong with Job's life. But as a result of Satan's attack, he, first of all, lost all his possessions, that is, all his wealth. He lost all his livestock and all his servants. And then he lost all his children. And we know that Job, at this point, had a uh, good response Uh, He said in verse 21 of chapter 1, Naked came I out of my mother's womb, and naked shall I return thither. The Lord gave, and the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now I say there would probably be very few of us that would have that attitude after losing all our possessions and all our children. But then it's taken one step further where Satan, you might say, tempted the Lord. And notice in chapter 2, Satan says in verse 4, Skin for skin, yea, all that a man hath will he give for his life. But put forth thine hand now and touch his bone and his flesh and he will curse thee to thy face. And the Lord said unto Satan, Behold, he is in thine hand, but save his life. The Lord says, Satan, do whatever you want short of taking his life. And we know the miserable condition that Job was in as a result of that. He was stricken with balls from the crown of his head to the sole of his feet. And I'm sure that was, a, it was a, probably a, a very severe thing. Not only severe, but covered his entire body. And then at that point, in chapter 2, verse 9, his wife, whom he still had, she was the only person he had left, but now his wife says, Dost thou still retain thine integrity? In other words, you're still not upset with the Lord about this? How can you still have this good outlook? She says, Dost thou still retain thine integrity? Curse God and die. So Job had
1: a bad case, didn't he?
0: And then... In chapter 3, verse 1, Job opened his mouth and cursed his day. And Job spake and said, Let the day perish wherein I was born, and the night in which it was said, There is a man-child conceived. When it says Job cursed his day, he's essentially saying, as it's described in uh, verse 3, He's essentially saying it would have been better if I had never been born. Now you may have said that before, but I'm comfortable in saying you probably weren't anywhere near in the condition that Job was in. He lost everything, everybody except a wife who said curse God and die, and then he was He lost his health and was in a very miserable condition. And so it just seems only human to say, it would have been better if I had never been born. But then it was made even worse by what his quote-unquote friend said. And I didn't think about this as I was getting ready to preach on it, but We brought all these messages about acceptable words, and here is a great illustration of unacceptable words as his friend said wrong things at the wrong time in the wrong way. Put yourself in Job's shoes And here you are, you've lost everything you've worked so hard to acquire. You've lost all your children to a tragic death. Your wife is telling you to curse God and die. She's not saying anything profitable at all. And now you're in a miserable condition as far as your physical health is concerned. And let's notice what some of his so-called friends said. Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. For the rest of this book, one of them will speak and Job will answer and the next one will speak and Job will answer and then the third one will speak and Job will answer and they do that three times and then there's a man, uh, another another man near the end of the book that uh, speaks to Job. And then, finally, the Lord speaks to Job. But I just want you to see some of the things that these friends said to Job. In chapter 4,
1: Eliphaz,
0: verse 2. If we assay to commune with thee, wilt thou be grieved? But who can withhold himself from speaking? Eliphaz is saying, man, it is obvious what the problem is, and how how can I even withhold from speaking when I see the situation you're in? And we don't have to guess about what his mindset was. He says... he goes on to say, Behold, thou hast instructed many, and thou hast strengthened the weak hands, thy words have holden him that was fallen, and thou hast strengthened the feeble knees, but now it has come upon thee, and thou faintest. It toucheth thee, and thou art troubled. Is not this thy fear, thy confidence, thy hope, and the uprightness of thy ways? Remember, I pray thee, whoever perished being innocent, Or where were the righteous cut off? Even as I have seen, they that plow iniquity and sow wickedness reap the same. Job, you're just reaping what you sowed. That's a good example of hope being deferred, isn't it? Here's someone already so miserable, they're saying it'd been better if I'd never been born, and somebody says, You're just reaping what you sow. Oh, that's that would really be like that sword going down into the innermost parts of the belly. But then notice
1: in chapter six, I believe it
0: is, the second one. Bildad said this, chapter 8, verse 3, doth God pervert judgment or doth the Almighty pervert justice? In other words, if you're not reaping what what you sowed, are you saying God got it wrong? Job, are you saying that, that God's making a mistake, that you haven't done wrong and he's in the wrong for judging you and chastening you like this? Verse 6, if thou wert pure and upright, surely now he would awake for thee and make the habitation of thy righteousness prosperous. Verse 11, can the rush grow up without mire? Can the fig tree grow without water? Whilst it is yet in his greenness and not cut down, it withereth before any other herb. So are the paths of all that forget God and the hypocrite's hope shall perish whose hope shall be cut off and whose trust shall be a spider's web. I tell you, Job's down as low as you can get, but they're trying to beat him down some more. No wonder he said a little later, miserable comforters are ye all. And this, as I said, is such a stark are such a, a sharp illustration of what we've been trying to preach for several weeks now that our words can cut deep. Job wasn't going through this because of any sin in his life, and he was the last thing he needed to hear was that he is reaping what he sowed, but not only are they saying that, they're using, uh, they're using very hard words about it. Notice, and we've already read this, notice in verse 8 of chapter 4, Even have I seen they that plow iniquity and sow wickedness reap the same. How would you like it if you were severely ill and you had lost everything you possessed and you're in the hospital and you know, you're know you struggling with depression on top of your sickness and a church member comes and says, hey, I don't know what it is, but whatever it is, you need to repent. That's essentially what they're saying in very
1: hard terms. But then notice in
0: chapter 9, Here's the question. Then Job answered and said, I know it is of a truth, but how should man be just with God? If he will contend with him, that is, if man will contend or argue with God, he cannot answer him one of a thousand. Now Job is Probably the oldest book in the Bible in terms of when it was written. It doesn't address the oldest events obviously Genesis addresses the oldest events, because it goes all the way back to the beginning, but it was written many years later. Job is probably the oldest book in the Bible in terms of when it was written, and this was a time before the gospel had been preached, before he he had not been exposed to the information that we have now so clearly in the New Testament about our salvation, and Job nonetheless was able to say...
1: I know this is true,
0: but I don't know how in the world it can be true. I know it's true, but I do not know how it can happen that man should be just with God. That is, that things could be made right between man and God. You see, this shows, at least at this point, that Joe wasn't even high-minded. He wasn't saying, well, I'm so righteous that this shouldn't happen to me. I believe eventually he did struggle with that evidently to some degree, but at this point he doesn't have a spirit of resentment and saying to his friends, he wasn't reacting to them and saying not only is it, untrue what you are saying, but I'm living a good life and this shouldn't be happening to me. He wasn't arrogant like that or high-minded, but rather he had the view that I hope you have apart from the truth of God's word. You know, God is described as holy, holy, holy. Jesus is described in Hebrews as holy, harmless, undefiled, and separate from sinners. And yet the Apostle Paul said, and it certainly applies to us the same, I know that in me that is in my flesh dwelleth no good thing. We're just like Paul when he said in Romans 7, what I would do I do not, and what I would not that I do. And he concludes by saying, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? How should man be
1: just with God? How can things be right between me and God? Now I want you to notice several places where the Bible emphasizes this truth that it
0: seems that there's no way that man could be just with God. The very beginning of time, the first man and the first woman. Remember what it said about them in Romans 5.12 in reference to their sin in the garden when they partook of the forbidden fruit. It says, by one man's sin entered into the world and death by sin. And so death passed upon all men for all have sinned. When you were conceived, you were contaminated and corrupt with sin. Why? Because notice what it says, by one man's sin entered into the world and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men. When Adam sinned, the consequences of that passed upon all of his descendants, including you and me. I've heard preachers say it this way, that we're Adam
1: multiplied. You're
0: a a sinner by nature and a sinner all the too much by practice. How should man be just with God? And then think about the flood in Noah's day. Remember what the Lord said right before the flood in Genesis chapter 6? Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually, and it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him at his heart. Now notice that. This is about 2,000 years after creation. Now, I don't know how long it was between creation and when Adam failed, but let's just assume for now that it wasn't that long between the time that Adam was created and the time that he failed. Here's two, this is 2,000 years after creation, and things have gotten worse. You know, man today thinks we're getting better. That's just the opposite of what the Bible teaches. Man started out bad. Started out however long it was after creation. He started out, let's just say it this way, the first man did wrong. The first man corrupted himself. The first man transgressed the law of God. And 2,000 years later, it's not better, it's worse. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. If you had not been touched by God's grace, that would describe you precisely. And it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth. And it grieved him at his heart. You see, the way you behave affects God. You realize that? It grieved God at his heart. When you sin, it grieves the Lord. The Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast and the creeping thing and the fowls of the air, for it repenteth me that I have made them, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Now I want you to notice this already at this point, that though this speaks about in verse Uh, Five that every imagination of the thoughts of man's heart was only evil continually, yet a few verses later, it says Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord, and as we mentioned this morning, the Bible says that Noah walked with God. So how do we interpret that it it seems to be a contradiction doesn't it he says every man's uh, the imagination of the thoughts of man's heart was only evil continually but now he says Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord there was something different about Noah he didn't deserve favor it was still due to God's grace that the Lord didn't destroy everything but Noah was a man of a different spirit of a different character So here's the way you interpret this. Verse 5 is describing the nature of man apart from the influence of God. When a man is not born again, he's dead spiritually. And even when a man is born again, he's still capable of living in a very ungodly way. And you know, we may ask ourselves the question, how is it that so many children of God could be living in such an evil way? Well, there's really only two positions you can take. Either Noah and his wife and his children were the only children of God on the planet at that time, and I don't believe that would harmonize with the Bible, or there was a lot of God's people living a wicked life. And the latter is what I believe was the case. Man wasn't getting better, he was getting worse. You might say, well, after the flood, things were better. As a matter of fact, the Bible makes it clear that things were no different. In Genesis chapter 8 and verse 21, let's start with verse 20. This is after the waters had abated. And Noah built an altar unto the Lord. The first thing he did was worship God in an acceptable way. And it says, Noah built an altar unto the Lord and took of every clean beast and of every clean fowl and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And the Lord smelled a sweet savor. And the Lord said in his heart, I will not again curse the ground anymore for man's sake. Because man is so much better now. That's not what it says.
1: For, or my center column
0: says, that could also have been translated though. The Lord says, I will not curse the ground anymore for man's sake, though the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. Man's no different. His heart still
1: evil from his youth.
0: Now look at Psalm 53. Surely after hundreds of years go by, this is probably, uh, I don't know, this is uh, hundreds of years later on. Notice in uh, Psalm 53. The fool has said in his heart, There is no God. Corrupt are they, and have done abominable iniquity. There is none that doeth good. God looked down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there were any that did understand, that did seek God. Every one of them has gone back. They are altogether become filthy. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. Still not getting any better. Now let's move to the New Testament. We're now about 4,000 years since creation. We're now about 2,000 years since the flood. And let's see if man's any better now. In Romans chapter 3, you'll notice here there's, There's much detail given to describe man, and things are no better. As a matter of fact, he quotes some of the things we just read in Psalm 53. In Romans 3.10, it says, It is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one, their throat is an open sepulcher, with their tongues they have used deceit. The poison of asp is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, destruction and misery are in their ways. And the way of peace have they not known, there is no fear of God before their eyes. Well, certainly then, by 2021, man finally turned it around and he's improved. Nope. (laughs) This describes our culture today. We will never in our own nature get better. And you as an individual person would never get better if it wasn't for God's grace acting upon you.
1: People say, well, you
0: just got to persuade people. Well, this says there's none that seeketh after God, no, not one. Man goes his own way. There's none good, no, not one. You know, the Holy Spirit often anticipates what you're going to ask. You know, the Lord says, there's none good. And you say, you mean not, there's not even one? No, not one.
1: But then notice in Romans chapter 5. Verse 19.
0: For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. Now we'll look at that in a minute. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. That is, the law just proved that we were wicked. But where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. Primitive Baptists emphatically believe salvation is by the grace of God. Notice this. Where sin abounded. And obviously based on the verses we've read, sin abounded. (laughs) There's no shortage of sin. Paul even said of himself that, you know, uh, he said, I am, uh, that the Lord came to save sinners of whom I am chief. He saw himself even as a born again child of God, as the chief of sinners. But thankfully, where sin abounded, grace outran it just a little bit. No, where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. That is, sin hath reigned unto death. Listen to this now. That's the truth. Sin reigned unto death. Even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. Now that's not speaking of your righteousness because that wouldn't be grace. I want you to understand what this is saying. He's saying that even though sin reigned to death, even so might grace reign through the righteousness of Jesus Christ unto eternal life. That's the interpretation of it, that in spite of the fact that sin reigns in you, the righteousness of Christ Reign so far above your sin that it'll get you eternal life. It'll reign, as he says here, unto eternal life. It'll keep reigning until you get to heaven. Because grace is reigning in Christ, you will go to heaven. Now, you ought to be ashamed of yourself if you think, well, salvation's by grace, so it doesn't matter how I live. But yet it is true. You can't out God's grace. And if you're thinking right, you'll be saying, Lord, all that does for me is motivate me to live godly. You can't out God's grace. Now, you're a fool if you wanted to go to hell, but the truth of the matter is you couldn't go to hell if you wanted to. People say, how can you believe and preach that? I'm talking to you about the emphatic doctrinal truth of salvation by grace, but if you're entertaining thoughts of dishonoring the Lord because salvation is by grace, you need to read what Paul said when he said, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer there I can't relate to a child of God who would say, oh, I've learned salvations by grace, so I'm just going to go out and wallow in sin because there's no way I can lose my eternal life. I don't relate to that thinking. And you better not either.
1: I hope you don't feel that way. Then look at 2 Corinthians Chapter 5.
0: Verse 21. Referring to Jesus. It says, For he that is God hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him now just read what that says it's so simple to understand it says Jesus knew no sin he wasn't a sinner he wasn't contaminated with sin he was, his being was anything but sin. It was completely void of the corruption of sin. But it says He made Him to be sin for us. Now what does that mean? That means He was held accountable for your sins. You see, if another sinful man was held accountable for your sins, that wouldn't do you a bit of good because he'd just be getting what he deserved anyway. But here's a man without sin. He could be your substitute because he was without sin. Notice how Peter described this, and I'll come back there to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. First uh, Peter chapter two verse twenty-four, referring to Jesus, who His own self bare our sins in His own body on the tree, that we being dead to sin should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes ye were healed. Notice it doesn't say that by His stripes you were made healable. It says, by His stripes you were healed. It says, His own self bear our sins in His own body. You see, that's the doctrine of the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ. Because He specifically said that He bear our sins in His own body. He was placed there as your substitute, and God's wrath was poured out on him. He says in verse 25, you were as sheep going astray, but are now returned unto the shepherd and bishop of your souls. You've been returned unto the Lord in the sense that Jesus saved you. I believe it was Luke that recorded where Jesus said, I am come to seek and to save that which was lost. You see all these modern ideas of, well, the Lord's willing, the Lord's offering it to you, and if you'll just be willing, if you'll accept, if you'll give in, if you'll pray, that's contrary to the language I'm reading to you. Because he said, uh, he that knew no sin became sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Hebrews 1.3 says, He by Himself purged our sins. When you purge something, you cut it away. It's not there anymore. Jesus purged our sin, And then look at 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 1.
1: verse 8.
0: Paul's writing to a young preacher. He says, be not thou therefore ashamed of the testimony of the Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but be thou partaker of the afflictions of the gospel according to the power of God. He says, don't be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. Well, what is it about the Lord's testimony that Causes me not to be ashamed. Verse 9. Who hath saved us? Just say that to yourself over and over. In your mind, not out loud. Who hath saved us? God hath saved us. In the first century, when this was written, it had already happened. This was about 33 years after the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, and they were, the writers were already saying, He hath saved us. Jesus said He would. He said He would save this people from their sins should we be surprised that He saved them. That's what He said He was going to do. He didn't say he was going to try to do it or make it possible or available or or do all of it but 10%. No, he said, I'm come to seek and save that which was lost. He says he saved us and called us with an holy calling. Now, I believe that's speaking of when God gives spiritual life to one of his individual children because. He says he hath called us. Remember John five twenty five. Jesus says the hour is coming now is when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God and they that hear shall live. This isn't a matter of something being offered. This is not something that's contingent upon the sinner's response. No, it says they shall hear the voice and they shall live. He saved us and called us with an holy calling. Someone says, well, if you'll just be willing, if you'll uh, you'll do this or meet these conditions, the Lord will born you of His Spirit. No, the very next phrase says, not according to our works. You're not saved based on or because of works. You're not born again based on or because of works. And the Bible says that believing is a work. Did you know that? And I'll have to look that up later, but you remember when they came to Jesus and said something to this effect. What can we do that we might work the works of God? You know what Jesus said? He says, again, in my words, oh, you want to do some work, some spiritual work? This is the work of God, that you believe on the name of him whom he has sent. You want to do work? And that's the same thing the Lord would say to us today. You want to do work? You're all excited about work? Jesus says, here's the work I want you to do. I want you to believe. I want you to believe that I am the Savior. That's the work God wants us to do. Now, we don't reap any eternal salvation as a result of that, but you ought to believe that. You see how Jesus is talking to them? He's basically saying, I don't want you to focus on works, but if you've got to do a work, here's the work I want you to do. If you want to call it a work, here's the work I want you to do. I want you to believe. But get your mind off this
1: desire to do the works of God
0: just believe on me he saved us and called us with a holy calling not according to not based on or because of our works now let's say that you as a primitive baptist are conversing with someone about your doctrine and you the right off the bat you say now listen I know you believe that you've got to do this to be saved. Well, we don't believe salvation is by works. We don't believe it's because of works. We don't believe it's according to works. Well, you know what their question likely may be? Well, what is it according to? If it's not because of works, and especially if you think that believing is a work or having faith is a work, then how in the world does it happen?
1: He says that in the next phrase.
0: Here's how you are saved and called. And that word according simply means it's in agreement with this. It goes along with this. You being saved and born of the Spirit is in accordance with the fact that according to His own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. You're saved and called because God purposed it. It was according to His purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ before the world began. You're saved and you're born again because God purposed it before the first day of creation. That's what it says. You say, I don't... I've never heard that. Well, all I did was read the Bible according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began, but is now made manifest by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ. You you see, even when Jesus came into the world 2,000 years ago, that was just the manifestation of what had already been purposed. He says, but it's now made manifest by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who hath abolished death and hath brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. The gospel does not bring life and immortality. You see, if someone's moving toward the truth of grace, and they've said, well, I don't believe it's by works anymore. I used to believe that. I don't believe it's by baptism anymore. I used to believe that. But I do believe the gospel is the channel. I don't believe you accept the gospel or believe the gospel in order to be saved because that would be a work. But I believe the gospel is like a channel that God uses to quicken people. Nope. The gospel does not bring life. It brings life in immortality to light. It causes the one who has spiritual life to say, oh, so that's what's going on. That's what's happened to me. I feel condemned and I feel like I deserve to go to hell. I feel like I'm going to hell. And I used to do things that that previously didn't bother me but now I do the same things and they bother me I don't enjoy them what's going on inside of me and how can they bring any hope for me I see how bad I am that's what the gospel does it brings life and immortality to light you know it's hard to get that light to turn on in some people's mind isn't it you know God works in such a way that we can't take credit if someone comes to understand the truth. You would be nice if I could just give all of y'all a little pamphlet and say, listen, whenever you come across someone that you are convinced is a born-again child of God, you just hand them this little pamphlet, and they'll be at church next Sunday because they'll see the truth. It doesn't work that way, does it? If it does to you, please give me the secret. It doesn't work that way for me. You know why it's that way? Because God always gets the glory. If anyone ever comes to see the truth, we'll give God the glory, not our great ability to convert people. Have you ever considered the account of Lydia in the book of Acts? She was at a prayer meeting. Obviously, she was already born of the Spirit. There's no spiritual action where there's no spiritual life. She was gathered by the riverside where prayer was wont to be made. But did you ever notice this in reading that? Even though she was at a prayer meeting, obviously had spiritual life, obviously loved the Lord, yet when Paul preached to her It said, the Lord opened her heart. Now that wasn't the new birth, was it? She was already a praying woman. She was already manifesting that she had spiritual life. This is a matter of the Lord turning that light on. When Paul preached to her, he had the spirit in preaching. There wasn't anything wrong with his preaching, but still it required the Lord opening her heart and she attended unto the things that were spoken by Paul. She gave attention to it because the Lord opened her heart. Shouldn't you be thankful that the Lord has opened your heart what primitive baptists preach is the truth salvation is by grace that's it there's not many people that believe and preach this in purity There's those that would get so close as to say, as we said earlier, well, God does use the gospel to pour the life in them. And then sometimes people will move even closer and say, well, I believe the way you believe it is how it happens most of the time. But the true church... Is identified by the doctrine that salvation is by grace all the way, all the time, with everybody. That makes it so simple, doesn't it? Think of it this way What harmony would there be in the Godhead if God chose a people, Jesus died for that people, But the Holy Spirit may or may not give them spiritual life. Have you ever thought about that? There are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. And that everlasting covenant was made in perfect unity. God said, I chose them. And he said, the Son, I'm giving them to you to redeem them. And the Spirit's job is to give that life. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your heart, crying, Abba, Father. A baby never has cried at birth because he was trying to get life. A baby cries because he has life. Matter of fact, they used to, I don't know if they still do it, but you know, they used to spank them on the bottom to make them cry. Because then they know for sure they're alive. The more someone cries, the more evidence you have that they're alive. And isn't it a paradox that the more you feel unworthy of the Lord's mercies to everybody else in the church, that's just greater evidence that you are a child of God. If you're trying to convince the church that you're not worthy to be a member, you are convincing the church that you are worthy to be a member. But if you come up here saying, well, the church needs me. I think Brother Chris told the story one time of a guy that had his degree in church growth. And he said, if you ever want me to come and help you out and grow the church, just let me know. Well, we don't want him to come speak. That's not what we're looking for. The Lord said, I'll leave in the, uh, in the midst of thee an afflicted and poor people. They shall trust in the name of the Lord. And I know this doesn't just apply to you young people. I know that, but it does apply in a special way. You are not living in general in the world among peers who feel to be poor and afflicted. But if you ever think, well, why am I different? Thank God you are different. Thank God you don't think this world has all the answers. Thank the Lord you see yourself as a sinner. Jesus said, remember in the the, uh, Sermon on the Mount, what was the first thing He said? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the
1: kingdom of heaven. In
0: Isaiah 40, this is before Jesus even came. And he said, Comfort ye, comfort ye, my people, saith your God. He didn't say, Scare ye, scare you, people that aren't saved. He said, Comfort ye, comfort ye, my people, saith your God. Speak ye comfortably unto Jerusalem and cry unto her. What do we cry in the gospel? The same thing that Isaiah talked about. Crying to her that her warfare is accomplished. That her iniquity is pardoned. For she hath received at the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Does it sound like there's anything left for Israel to do? and you're the spiritual Israel, Israel is a type and shadow of God's elect people. And if God was telling Israel through the prophet Isaiah that message that the warfare is accomplished, the iniquity is pardoned, you've received at the Lord's hand double for all your sins, then certainly that applies spiritually to the Lord's people today.
1: I believe the sermon
0: I preached this morning on what we say was probably my last one on that subject, but if I didn't believe what I preached tonight, it wouldn't do me a bit of good to hear any of that, because I fail in that every day, all the time, but see what I'm preaching tonight, nobody can pull that out from under me. Nobody can accuse me and say, buddy, you messed that up. Aren't you glad you had nothing to do with getting saved? If you did, you could sure enough undo it. If there was a possibility for you to mess it up, you probably would. But I love that truth that where sin abound. Grace does much more abound. You can't exhaust the forgiveness you have in christ and let me tell you this in conclusion
1: if his grace abounded way above where sin abounded
0: and that's why we're going to heaven Is it not also true that as far as your fellowship with the Lord is concerned, that no matter how much you do the same thing over and over and over and over, that even in terms of fellowship, grace does much more abound? The Lord meant what he said when he inspired John to write, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There's some things that I do over and over and over again. But I've never had the sense that God said, "That's it. That's enough, man. Don't come with don't come to me with that problem
1: again. You can't exhaust
0: his grace and thank the Lord you can't. You're going to heaven because of it and you can't ever ruin your, the possibility or the availability. You can't sever the availability of God's kingdom in this world as far as its influence in your life. I hope this has comforted you and this is what identifies the church. Because the gospel is the good news of something that has been completely accomplished. And we're just the beneficiaries of it. We thank you for listening to today's message. For more information, please visit us online at zionpbc.com.